Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 107 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI and their daring 1971 burglary to expose FBI secrets. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1971, a group of nine concerned citizens decided that they needed to take matters into their own hands and begin an investigation of the FBI. They named themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, which is a nice, obvious name. But they weren't content to just collect press clippings or interview representatives of the agency. In their eyes, the press wasn't reliable, and FBI representatives wouldn't tell them the truth. So they decided upon a daring plan. To get to the truth, to find out the FBI's real secrets, they would break into an FBI office in the dead of night. They did, and they came away with a treasure trove of confidential files. And when the files were released, it shook the FBI, and the agency has never been the same. So who were these civic-minded burglars? What secrets did they discover, and how did the FBI retaliate? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say before we begin? Today, we're going to be telling the story of how, in 1971, a group of people exposed a widespread pattern of illegal activity by the FBI, including illegal lethal activity, meaning that people were dying because of the FBI's criminal acts. So whatever else you may think about the Citizens Commission and their times, bear that in mind. They really did unearth this stuff. They revealed that the FBI was committing crimes and that these crimes had authorization right from the top. There's so much interesting stuff to talk about that we'll be doing a two-parter on this story. Today, we'll tell you the public side of the story, what the public was aware of back in 1971 as the story unfolded. Then at the end of today's episode, we'll pull back the curtain a bit and introduce you to what the public didn't know at the time, which includes who the burglars were. Then in our next episode, we'll go all the way down the rabbit hole and show you how the burglars pulled off their dramatic and daring heist. We'll also look at what they did from the faith and reason perspectives, and that'll include a look at some of the shocking secrets about the FBI and its criminal activities that were revealed. All right. So I think we should start by setting the stage, talking about America in 1971. How were things going in 1971 in America? Oh, things were just great. America was riding high. The public was enjoying an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity. Confidence in the government and our social institutions was at an all-time high. And there was one particular institution that everyone in America took great pride in. Warner Brothers production, starring Ephraim Zimlis Jr., also starring Philip Abbott, Steve
Stephen Brooks. With guest stars, Ruth Roman, Gene Hackman, Phyllis Love. Tonight's episode, The Courier. The FBI had been founded in 1908, just back then as the Bureau of Investigation. They didn't add the federal part until later. It was founded by uh, President Teddy Roosevelt in the last year of his administration. And in 1924, a young man named J. Edgar Hoover became its beloved director. He would serve in that capacity for an astonishing 48 years, the longest term of civil service in the federal government ever. He successfully guided the Bureau through the Great Depression in the 1930s, the dangerous World War II era of the 1940s, and the Red Scare of the 1950s when he protected the nation by rooting out communist spies. The Bureau's reputation was sterling, and in 1965, the ABC television network began running a popular TV show about the FBI starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., It ran for nine years, and it was in the top 20 shows for almost all that time. The show was so popular that it had famous guest stars, including Gene Hackman, Burt Reynolds, Robert Duvall, Lee Merriweather, Martin Sheen, Billy Dee Williams, and many more. Back in the real world, whenever J. Edgar Hoover appeared before Congress, the congressmen and senators would fawn over him. And... When he asked for budget increases, he got the amount he was asking for every single time after 1950, with only two exceptions. And on those two occasions, Congress actually gave him more money than what he was asking for. So by 1971, things were going just great, both for the FBI and for America. Sorry, but I had to stop this right now. This is just terrible. Do we have to tell the story this way? No, Missy is right. We should back up and look at things another way. After he became FBI director in 1924, Hoover fired all the female agents and banned the Bureau from hiring them in the future. In the 1930s, when prohibition fueled the rise of organized crime and the mafia in the United States, Hoover persistently denied the existence of such organizations even as gangsters ran wild. In 1939, the Bureau began compiling secret lists of people to be detained in the event of war with the Axis powers. And on December 7, 1941, as bombs were still falling on Pearl Harbor, Hoover authorized mass arrests and warrantless searches of homes, leading to the FBI taking more than 5,000 Japanese Americans into custody. In 1950, at the outbreak of the Korean War, Hoover submitted a plan to President Truman to suspend the writ of habeas corpus and perform the mass arrest and detention of 12,000 people he suspected of being disloyal, though Truman rejected the plan. In the 1950s, Hoover began an illegal counterintelligence and surveillance program, which was fueled by the Red Scare of the McCarthy era. The program involved infiltrating agents into suspect groups, burglaries, illegal wiretaps, intimidation, planting false documents, and spreading false rumors to sow discord among the targets. Hoover began to suspect anyone on the liberal end of the political spectrum, including members of the emerging civil rights movement, and he targeted and surveilled various figures, including Martin Luther King. He compiled extensive private dossiers on government officials, including congressmen and senators, and used these to intimidate them and get them to vote his way. Even American presidents were afraid of Hoover, which is why he was allowed to remain in his office as the FBI director for 48 years. 
In episodes 96 and 97, we talked about the abuses the FBI committed in connection with the Branch Davidians and the Waco siege, but abuses were not new. As we'll see, they go back to the era of J. Edgar Hoover himself. By the 1960s, America had become embroiled in the Vietnam War, which became increasingly controversial. So even today, a lot of people have different opinions about the Vietnam War, about whether it was moral, whether it could have been won. Are we going to be talking about those subjects in today's show? The history of the Vietnam War is complex, so we won't be dealing with it in detail in today's episode. In particular, I want to make it clear, we won't be going into whether the Vietnam War was moral or immoral at different stages of its progression. That's a topic that's too big to deal with in this episode, though we may discuss it in the future. Whatever way you look at it, as the war proceeded, the war became increasingly unpopular with many people in America, and a large-scale protest movement developed. One of the reasons that the war was controversial is that at the time, America did not have an all-volunteer military service. Every young man, 18 years and older, was legally required to register for the draft, and they'd put you in prison if you didn't, among other penalties. Then, if they drafted you, you were legally required to go fight in the war, and, again, they would put you in prison if you didn't. Even today in America, young men have to register for the draft in case it's brought back in a future war, but currently we have an all-volunteer military. Back then, we didn't, and lots of young men thought it was grossly unfair that they be compelled to fight in a war that they didn't believe was moral. Lots of their friends and relatives agreed with them, and resistance to the draft was a prominent component of the overall anti-war movement. Fuel was added to the fire going on in America when, in 1968, the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King took place, as well as the rising youth rebellion and the spread of drug culture. And the spread of drug culture happened in part because of the CIA's LSD testing programs, including MKUltra and Operation Chaos, which we will be talking about in future episodes. Originally, the anti-war movement was built around peaceful protests, but there were exceptions. By 1969, the Weathermen, later known as the Weather Underground, had been organized, and they committed a series of violent crimes, including a series of bombings of government targets. Most protesters were peaceful, but the government also used violence against the protesters, and tensions were high. Sometimes they would use tear gas on protesters, and the protesters would throw rocks back at the police or even throw back the tear gas canisters sometimes. These included the same kind of CS tear gas that the, that the FBI later used on the Branch Davidians, with the difference that it was being deployed outdoors in open-air environments instead of being projected into a building. Most famously, on May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard was involved in a confrontation with protesters at Kent State University when, under mysterious circumstances that are still debated today, the National Guardsmen opened fire on a crowd of students. Here's an actual recording of that exchange. Listen for the gunshots. They go on for 13 seconds. (laughs) 
When the smoke cleared, it turned out that the guardsmen had killed four students and wounded nine others. Afterwards, President Richard Nixon instituted the President's Commission on Campus Unrest, and in September of 1970, it concluded, Even if the guardsmen faced danger, it was not a danger that called for lethal force. The 61 shots by 28 guardsmen certainly cannot be justified. Apparently, no order to fire was given, and there was inadequate fire control discipline on Blanket Hill. The Kent State tragedy must mark the last time that, as a matter of course, loaded rifles are issued to guardsmen confronting student demonstrators. It should be stressed that many of the people involved in the anti-war movement were pacifists and were resolutely opposed to the use of violence in any form, including in protests. It also should be mentioned that many religious leaders, including members of the Catholic clergy, were involved in the anti-war movement, and Catholics played a prominent role in it. Needless to say, people in the anti-war movement were very wary about how the government was responding to the protests, and they became suspicious that the government was infiltrating the protest organizations with informants. They were right to be suspicious because the authorities were doing exactly that. They were either recruiting people to serve as informants or planting law enforcement agents to serve as spies. And they weren't just serving as spies. On some occasions, they were serving as agent provocateurs who were there to stir up trouble. Also, like the agents that the government sent to spy on the Branch Davidians, these agents weren't very good at impersonating hippie student protesters, so it could be a little obvious who they were. In the late 1960s, J. Edgar Hoover required all FBI agents to keep a really clean-cut appearance, and there were very few African-American FBI agents and no women agents since Hoover had fired them all in 1924, and new ones wouldn't be hired until 1972. So who the government provocateurs were could be kind of obvious. Here's how one eyewitness, Keith Forsyth, describes it. There were people who you could tell were clearly agent provocateurs in some of the demonstrations. You know, you'd see a guy with a crew cut, wingtips, and a tie-dyed T-shirt on saying, kill the pigs. And you're like, <laughs> I think you need to go back to acting school, dude, because you're not pulling it off. Eventually, though, Hoover had to loosen the rules about who could serve as an FBI agent. Here's how Tom Weiner describes it in his book, Enemies, A History of the FBI. The FBI started recruiting informants as young as 18. Undercover operations against the left expanded. The small but growing contingent of FBI agents who looked, dressed, and acted like their targets had a camaraderie and an esprit de corps all its own. The agents called themselves Beards, Blacks, and Broads. For the types of agents that previously had not really been allowed. But in 1970, it could still be quite obvious who the government agents were, and between that and their general distrust of the authorities and their knowledge of their tactics, members of the anti-war movement knew that they were being spied upon. They were convinced that the FBI was up to no good, that it was abusing its authority, and some anonymous anti-war activists decided to take action. What did they do? For the next stage of our story, we need to go to the town of Media, Pennsylvania. It's about 13 miles west of Philadelphia. And it's a small place. In 1970, there were only a little more than 6,000 people living there. 
also in 1970, it was the site of a minor office of the FBI that was run by just five men. And one day, something remarkable happened. As described by Betty Metzger in her book, The Burglary, It was 7.40 a.m. Tuesday, March 9th, at the Media FBI office. As usual, Frank McLaughlin was the first agent to arrive. There had been a burglary the night before at a bank in nearby Glen Olden. It was a failed burglary. Nevertheless, he had worked on it until 2 a.m. He went home after he was done rather than return to the office to file a report and slept very little before he left for work. McLaughlin was tired, but he was not too tired to notice as he approached the office entrance that something looked different. Quote, it looked to me like somebody had tried to force something in the lock, unquote. He tried to open the door. As he wrote later in an official report, when he inserted his key, it turned completely around as though it was in putty. He automatically looked at the second door, and I could see that it was ajar. I suspected that there was a burglary. I mean, I've been in this business a lot of years. About this time, another agent came up and I said, I think we've got a burglary. One of them very cautiously pushed the door open as far as it would go. The two agents squeezed through the narrow opening. McLaughlin remembers scanning the scene. The place was ransacked. The doors of cabinets were open and files were gone. I walked into my office and the desk drawers were rifled. Soon, all five agents who worked in the office had arrived and were taking in the unprecedented scene. An FBI office emptied of its files, apparently by burglars. And this was unprecedented. Nobody had burgled the FBI like this before, and all their files were missing. The FBI agents didn't know it, but just an hour before, the phone of a local reporter named Bill Wingell had rung and woken him out of a sound sleep. Over the phone came the voice of a man who he didn't know, and the man read him a statement which said, in part, On the night of March 8th, 1971, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI removed files from the Media Pennsylvania Office of the FBI. These files will now be studied to determine, one, the nature and extent of surveillance and intimidation carried on by this office of the FBI, particularly against groups and individuals working for a more just, humane, and peaceful society. Two, how much of the FBI's efforts are spent on relatively minor crimes by the poor and powerless against whom they can get a more glamorous conviction rate? instead of investigating truly serious crimes by those with money and influence which cause great damage to the lives of many people. Crimes such as war profiteering, monopolistic practices, institutional racism, organized crime, and the mass distribution of lethal drugs. 3. The extent of illegal practices by the FBI, such as eavesdropping, entrapment, and the use of provocateurs and informers. As this study proceeds, the results obtained, along with the FBI documents pertaining to them, will be sent to people in public life who have demonstrated the integrity, courage, and commitment to democratic values which are necessary to effectively challenge the repressive policies of the FBI. We have carried out this action in a way which does not physically threaten anyone. We intend no personal harassment of the people who work in the office from which files were taken. Indeed, we invite them and others to join with us in building a peaceful, just, and open society. We have taken this action because we believe that a law and order which depends on intimidation and repression to secure obedience can have but one name, and that name is tyranny. 
We believe that democracy can survive only in an order of justice, of an open society, and public trust. We believe that citizens have the right to scrutinize and control their own government and its agencies. And because we believe that the FBI has betrayed its democratic trust, and we wish to present evidence for this claim to the open and public judgment of our fellow citizens. In doing this, we know full well the legal jeopardy in which we place ourselves. We feel most keenly our responsibilities to those who daily depend upon us and whom we put in jeopardy by our own jeopardy. But under present circumstances, this seems to us our best way of loving and serving them, and in fact, all the people of this land. Finally, the voice reiterated the name of the group that had committed the burglary. The Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. And that's an interesting name. High government officials often appointed commissions to investigate things, like President Johnson's commission to investigate the assassination of President Kennedy or President Nixon's commission to investigate campus unrest. But nobody was appointing a commission to investigate the FBI because J. Edgar Hoover had them on his side, either because they approved of his tactics or because he used his tactics to intimidate them. And so a group of citizens had appointed their own commission to do what the government had not. This seems like an opportune time to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Uh, This time we want to thank Christian C., Austin L., Samuel E., Edward R., and Derek M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, did the Citizens Commission follow through on its plan to analyze the FBI documents and then send them to prominent public figures? You bet. On March 19th, just 10 days after the FBI discovered its files were missing, a set of five letters were postmarked in Princeton, New Jersey. Each of the five letters had the return address Liberty Publications, Media, Pennsylvania. So the Citizens Commission was now also using the name Liberty Publications. When the documents arrived, they were accompanied by a cover letter, which stated, Dear friend, enclosed you will find copies of certain files from the Media Pennsylvania Office of the FBI, which were removed by our commission for public scrutiny. We are making these copies available to you and to several other persons in public life because we feel that you have shown concern and courage as regards issues which are, in part documented in the enclosed materials. You will also find a statement which our commission prepared at the time of this action, which may help interpret our decision to you and others. Please feel free to make copies of any or all of this material and disseminate it or not according to your own judgment. About a week after you receive this material, our commission will publicly announce this mailing together with the names of those to whom we have sent it. We will, of course, make perfectly clear in our announcement that our actions were entirely our own decision and responsibility. Your degree of public association or disassociation with our commission is entirely a matter of your own choice. Sincerely, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. So the commission left it up to the judgment of the individuals who received the documents whether or not they wanted to make them public, though they indicated that they would let the public know who received them. 
yeah, that seems to be putting them in the target uh, box. Well, it's it's better than a demand, <laughs> yes, you know, but it's 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 not it's it's sort of an in the middle yes. thing. You, you, I kind of sense they're trying to be fair. They want to prompt him to act, but they also want to give him some some room to decide on their own. Sure, sure. And I suppose that the Wits would put these people in the FBI's uh, crosshairs to see what they had to do with all this, too, though. Oh, yeah. So who yeah. who did get these documents? The first was George McGovern. He was a member of the U.S. Senate and served as a Democrat from South Dakota. The next year, 1972, he would go on to be the Democratic presidential candidate against Richard Nixon, and it would be his campaign that was the target of the Watergate break-in that we discussed back in Episode 7. The second recipient was Perrin Mitchell. He was a member of the House of Representatives and served as a Democrat from Maryland. The last three recipients were all reporters or columnists for major newspapers. They were Tom Wicker of the New York Times, Jack Nelson of the Los Angeles Times, and Betty Metzger of the Washington Post. So we had a U.S. senator, a U.S. congressman, and three people who wrote for major newspapers. As the cover letter said, all five individuals had previously said or written things that made the commission think that they would be sympathetic to their investigation of the FBI. But still, the choice of whether to publish the documents they received was up to them. So did they all publish the documents? No. Interestingly, Senator McGovern refused to publish the documents and denounced the Citizens Commission. He was no friend of J. Edgar Hoover and wanted a government investigation of the FBI, but he denounced what the commission did as a criminal act. Perhaps he did so as a matter of principle or... Perhaps he didn't want to be seen as siding with criminals, which could hurt his image as a politician, particularly in light of his upcoming presidential campaign. Representative Mitchell also denounced the commission, again, either as a matter of principle or because he was a politician who didn't want to be seen as siding with criminals. And then what about the three people who worked for newspapers? The results were mixed. Initially, the press was reluctant to publish the commission's documents. At first, both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times didn't publish. But this went by the wayside, and they ended up being released. The first paper to publish was the Washington Post. When Betty Metzger received her packet in the mail, the Post contacted the FBI, which was happy to confirm that the documents were authentic because they said, therefore, they should never see the light of day. Please don't publish. But once the Post learned they were authentic, they ran the matter up their internal chain of command, and eventually their publisher, Catherine Graham, approved their publication. And this would set an important precedent because just three months later, in June of 1971, Graham would also approve the Washington Post's publication of a series of articles on the illegally leaked Pentagon Papers, a secret Defense Department history of the Vietnam War, which we may well also discuss in a future episode. And just a year after that, beginning in June of 1972, the Washington Post would begin publishing its series of articles on the Watergate break-in, which Graham also approved. But the initial five packets of documents were only the first of a number of mailings because the Citizens Commission had obtained more than a thousand confidential FBI documents. So what was J. Edgar Hoover's reaction as all this started to unfold? One of the highest staffers in the FBI in 1971 was a man named Mark Felt. 
he had hopes of being appointed the head of the FBI one day as Hoover's successor, but he wasn't. So instead, he decided to undermine the man who was appointed as Hoover's successor, L. Patrick Gray. And so he started leaking damaging information to the Washington Post's reporter Bob Woodward during the Watergate scandal. Mark Felt thus became the famous anonymous government official known as Deep Throat, who we'll discuss in more detail in a future episode. But he wasn't Deep Throat yet. In 1971, Hoover was still alive. Mark was still a high official. And because of that, he was quickly assigned to help deal with the disappearance of the files that the Citizens Commission had taken. So he was in a good position to observe Hoover's reaction. According to Betty Metzger, There is no record of Hoover's initial reaction when he was told the media office had been burglarized and all serials had been removed. Given Mark Felt's very close working relationship with Hoover, his account of the director's reaction undoubtedly is accurate. He reported that Hoover was enraged, and so was I. This description matches a report in the Washington Star by Jeremiah O'Leary, one of the director's favorite reporters. He wrote at the time that when Hoover learned of the media burglary, he was apoplectic. Hoover's anger and concern about the potential impact of the media burglary is not surprising. To him, the Bureau's files were both secret and sacred. He had spent more effort than people outside the FBI knew creating what he thought would keep the Bureau's files sealed and protected from outside scrutiny. His goal of being held accountable to no one but himself depended on his maintaining total control of his files. He knew that if they were exposed, the mythic legends he had created about both himself and the Bureau over a lifetime would be endangered. In his own history of the FBI, Tom Weiner says that Hoover reacted to the theft as if an assassin had tried to cut out his heart. So Hoover authorized an investigation of the events, and that investigation eventually involved up to 200 agents looking for the members of the Citizens Commission. With that huge of an effort, the director behind them, 200 agents, did they ever catch the burglars? Record scratch! Nothing says stop everything like the sound of obsolete technology malfunctioning. Once again, Missy is right. Before talking about the results of the FBI investigation, we should discuss what we now know about the Citizens Commission. So let's travel back in time to 1971 and talk about a physics professor at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. His name is William C. Davidon. And he was one of the co-developers of a physics algorithm known as the David and Fletcher Powell formula. In 1970, he had two small daughters and he spent almost all his free time in anti-war work. As part of this, he fell in with a group of Catholics who were also very active in the protest movement. According to Betty Metzger, he regarded them as the most radical and courageous people he had met in the peace movement. He continued to work with the resistance and other groups, but now he found a new home with these activists, priests and nuns, ex-priests and ex-nuns, the young sons and daughters of working-class Catholics, and other people who embraced their commitment to nonviolent protest. They re-energized Davidin's activism and gave him the hope he was searching for. As he became more involved with the Catholics, Davidin's identity among his colleagues in the Philadelphia peace movement became even more confusing. For years, some people had assumed he was a Quaker because of his involvement with Quaker peace organizations. Or was he an Episcopalian? He occasionally worked with members of the Episcopal Peace Fellowship, especially enjoying working with a peace activist Episcopal priest, the late Reverend David Gracie. 
But now some people assumed Davidin was a Catholic. He became used to and somewhat amused by having a mistaken identity. Actually, he was a secular Jewish humanist who was willing to work with anyone, as were these Catholics who shared his passion for nonviolent protest in an effort to stop the war and the use of nuclear weapons. But not all was well in the peace movement. As he moved from peace group to peace group that year, searching for more effective ways to escalate opposition to war, he repeatedly heard a very troubling rumor. He heard it from people in various types of peace organizations, academic, scientific, religious, anti-draft. They told him there were growing fears that there were FBI spies in their midst. Fear of informers was having a poisonous impact, he was told. People worried about whether the person who stood beside them at a demonstration was an informer. Some wondered about their neighbor, their colleague at work, or the new volunteer in the peace organization office. Were they informers? Trust was fraying. Some people considered colleagues with such concerns to be paranoid and dismissed them. Davidin listened carefully, but he was cautious. At first, he did not take the concerns very seriously. True to his reluctance to accept either speculation or conspiracy theories, he thought people might be exaggerating, or that their frustrations about the war after so many years of failing to stop it might be fueling irrational fears. But the concerns were repeated to him again and again. Very reasonable people from a diverse range of peace organizations expressed them. By the fall of 1970, Davidin no longer doubted what people were telling him. He concluded that the rumor probably was true. Peace organizations had been infiltrated by informers. One of the nation's most powerful leaders, J. Edgar Hoover, he now feared, might have turned the power of the FBI against people who opposed the war. Davidin thought about it constantly. If it turned out that the U.S. government was suppressing Americans' rights to express dissent, including and especially dissent about the most crucial issues, the war, the use of apocalyptic weapons in the war, and racial equality, then much was at stake. Without the freedom to dissent without being spied on, Davidin thought, dissent was empty, erased, useless. Such spying, he thought, was gravely hypocritical in a nation that expressed great pride in being the land of the free. How could a government that claimed to be fighting a war for people's freedom in another country at the same time suppress its own people's right to dissent? And so, Davidin approached nine of his friends and asked them a simple question. What do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? His friends were somewhat taken aback by the question, but they heard him out. In the end, only one of them, a philosophy professor, turned him down. The other eight agreed. The people who said yes to Davidin's invitation to consider burglarizing an FBI office were diverse in various ways. They ranged in age from 20 to 44. They included three women and five men, a religion professor, a daycare center worker, a graduate student in a health profession, another professor, a social worker, and two people who had dropped out of college to work nearly full-time on building opposition to the war. Though all of them owed their awareness of burglary as an act of resistance to the Catholic peace movement, only one of them was a Catholic. Four were Jews and three were Protestants. They knew one another, but they were not close friends. Bonds developed among them as they tackled Davidin's idea. Four of them were parents of young children. None of them had ever thought of doing anything as extreme as burglarizing an FBI office. But now, with American society coming apart at the seams and the FBI apparently violating the rights of American citizens, they faced a grave threat. And so, 
they would embark on a desperate mission that would take them into the heart of darkness, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. The eight friends, plus David and himself, thus formed a fellowship of nine, including the two young college dropouts, one of whom later said that their role involved being the comic relief for the group. Wait, we're coming too! Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission, quest, thing. Well, that rules you out, Nick. I'm companions. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? But not all of the nine companions would make the full journey. One of them would turn back. He would even threaten to betray the others and turn them in to the FBI. So, Jimmy, what theories do we have about this mystery? This mystery has been solved. So in our next episode, from the reason perspective, we'll simply tell you what happened. This will include the inside story of what the Citizens Commission did, and it will include the things the FBI did to catch them. Then, in the faith perspective, we'll look at the moral questions involved in the FBI break-in. Specifically, was the break-in itself morally justified? Were the tactics the commissioners used morally justified? And were these the right people to do it? We'll also tell you some of the shocking secrets about what the FBI had been up to. So, Jimmy, what are further resources do we have for folks to listen to or check out? We have uh, Betty Metzger's book, The Burglary, Tom Weiner's book, Enemies, A History of the FBI, Ronald Kessler's book, Secrets of the FBI, and Gary Nosner's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, which we already talked about in the Branch Davidians episodes. We'll also have a link to a documentary about this event called 1971 the year that it all happened. Also, we'll have pages on the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, and a link to uh, Big Finish's set of Doctor Who-themed audio plays, Missy Volume 1, which is where we got the uh, record scratch clips. Excellent. So uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback. We love getting feedback from our patrons. And so these come from our most recent patrons question show. Uh, And the first feedback comes from Clemens, who writes on uh, Facebook. I'm really disappointed with Jimmy Akin in his point about anarchism. He just equated authority with the modern state, even though the church claims authority without having a military or police to enforce it. Heck, the Middle Ages didn't have a centralized state, but competing authorities with guilds, bishops, lords, cities and orders. So we had several respondents who wrote in about the anarchy question that we had. And we should mention we're talk we're not talking about bomb throwing anarchy. We're talking about philosophical anarchy as a way of structuring society like anarcho-capitalism and things like that. And I'm always happy to have folks expressing disagreement and other points of view. I think that's great. That's why I include other points of view in the feedback sections on the show. I would ask for people to listen carefully though, to what I actually say. I did not simply equate authority with the modern state. I talked about a variety of options. I quoted from the catechism, which I'll quote again in a minute, but I quoted from the catechism saying that the every human community needs an authority to govern it, 
And so that's a government, but that doesn't necessarily mean a modern state. And I named several radically different options for how the state could be configured. And those were by no means exhaustive. There are all kinds of ways you can imagine the state being configured. It doesn't have to be big centralized nation states. It could be much smaller communities like in the Middle Ages where you had lords with individual territories, but you didn't have something like France as a distinct nation state. So let's take a look once again at the catechism. In paragraph 1897, it says human society can be neither well-ordered nor prosperous unless it has some people invested with legitimate authority to preserve its institutions and devote themselves as far as it is necessary to work and care for the good of all. By authority, the catechism says, one means the quality by virtue of which persons or institutions make laws and give orders to men and expect obedience from them. So the question was, could a Catholic be an anarchist? Well, if it's a kind of anarchy that says human society doesn't need people invested with legitimate authorities to make laws and give orders to men which they are expected to obey, then that would be a form of anarchism that's in conflict with the teaching of the catechism here. The catechism goes on in the next paragraph to say, every human community needs an authority to govern it. So a government. The foundation of such authority lies in human nature. It is necessary for the unity of the state. Notice the catechism is presupposing some kind of state, not necessarily the modern nation state, but some kind of state. Its role is to ensure as far as possible the common good of the society. Now, some of the people who interacted on this question pointed out that there have been Catholics who have espoused uh, different versions of anarchism, like Dorothy Day, who currently has a cause for canonization open, and the modern philosopher Tom Woods, a philosopher and author, who's an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah, well, it's true. There have been and are Catholics who espouse these. I, I have not personally studied the details of their thought on the versions of anarchism that they espouse. I would point out that just because someone's a Catholic and espouses anarchy doesn't mean they're espousing a version of anarchism that is compatible with the teaching of the church. That might or might not be true. Also, just because you have a cause of canonization open doesn't mean you were a theologian who got everything right. And I don't know the details of what Dorothy Day thought, so I can't speak to that one way or the other. Also, I'd mention I've had some interaction with Tom Woods in the past, and he's always been nice to me. I would point out the catechism, and this is something I often end up pointing out, the catechism is meant as a brief summary document. It's, it's not meant to spell out the church's thought in exhaustive detail. So there is, when you're dealing especially with social issues, where there's more complexity than the catechism can really get into, it is possible to go beyond just what the catechism says and say, well, what are the underlying principles it's trying to articulate here? What are the questions it's not answering? One of the things that some of the respondents who interacted with us on this question talked about was a difference between what they referred to as consensual versus non-consensual government. And the idea is in some versions of anarchism, like let's say anarcho-capitalism, you'd have different police forces or military forces 
that would be bidding competitively to uh, or making competitive offers, at least, to be the police force or the military for a given group, and then you'd hire them. And so that would involve a certain degree of consent to having these people as our military, whereas they would view the current situation here in America and in other nation states as non-consensual. And I understand how it could feel different if we were bidding on who our police and military should be and accepting contracts and stuff. It would feel consensual in a different way. But actually, there is a form of consent now. It would be a mistake to characterize our form of government as non-consensual. One of the things that you'll find if you read, for example, Gaudium et Spes, this is a Second Vatican Council document. If you look at Gaudium et Spes number 74, which is also quoted in the Catechism in paragraph 1901, it says, it is clear, therefore, that the political community and public authority are founded on human nature and hence belong to the order designed by God, even though the choice of a political regime and the appointment of rulers are left to the free will of citizens. So the church acknowledges that you can have a, a diversity of different political regimes. It could be monarchy, could be aristocracy, could be oligarchy, could be democracy, could be a republic, and you can have different mechanisms for appointing rulers. All of that's left up to the free will of citizens. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologia makes this point in, a, in, in an even clearer way that really it the government does, legitimate government does rest on the foundation of the consent of the governed. If you look in the Summa Theologia, part one of the second part, question 90, section three or article three, he says that making law belongs either to the whole people, so that would be a democracy, or to someone who is the vice regent of the whole people. So one way or another, the whole people, either directly or through a vice regent, are the ones that have the power to make law. So law rests on the consent of the community that the law pertains to. And in some countries like America, explicit provision is made for changing the law in various ways. You can, here in America, we can vote new people into office. And if people wanted, for example, to institute anarcho-capitalism here in the United States, you could do that. The way to do that would be to elect people who will be willing to call a constitutional convention to scrap our current constitution and make other arrangements that would provide for anarcho-capitalism or some other version of anarchism. But we do have a legal process for that. And that shows that and if you think about, well, how would we ever get there? I don't think most people in America would support that. Certainly not anytime soon. Well, that just illustrates the fact most people in America consent to our current form of government. So it's not really non-consensual. Most people actually are consenting. That doesn't mean the government is always doing the right thing. As we talked about in this episode and as we're going to talk about in our next episode, the government can misuse its authority. But that doesn't mean it's a fundamentally non-consensual arrangement. Personally, as someone who likes to think outside the box, I'm open to various alternative ways of making arrangements for society. And I'm personally kind of friendly to libertarian pharyngonomics. But I do recognize that some versions of what are called anarchism are not compatible 
with church teaching. Other versions you could, if they're refined enough, you could see them as compatible with church teaching. At that point, though, you have a couple of issues. One of them is the term is going to be used in a way that won't be recognized by the public. It's such a specialized use of the term anarchy that it's it, it, if you say, oh, I'm an anarchist to the public, they're not going to they're not going to correctly understand what you mean. Also, you'd have a problem implementing it, not just because of consent reasons, but if you did, for example, break up the United States into lots of smaller local governments that were run anarcho-capitalistically, there would be big, huge th- threats like nuclear war from Red China. You know, who's going to maintain the military stockpile in an anarcho-capitalist situation? Maybe there would be ways of doing that, but it generally takes a sizable state with sizable organization to maintain a serious nuclear deterrence. But, you know, who knows? Uh, All right. Thank you for that. And uh, our next bit of feedback comes from H stars on YouTube who writes, hi, Jimmy. I started listening to Jimmy Aiken's mysterious world during the coronavirus lockdown and want to thank you for making such an informative and entertaining show with Don Bettinelli. Regarding the topic of atheists being saved while remaining atheists, I agree with your analysis that a person who involuntarily becomes an atheist would not lose sanctifying grace if he had it. But for atheists who do possess a normal, rational faculty, isn't it absolutely necessary that they acknowledge God's existence? Hebrews 11.6 seems to be very clear about that question. Well, so Hebrews 11.6, what it says is that faith is necessary to please God, for in order to please God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So certainly some types of atheism are not going to are not going to be pleasing to God. I mean, all forms of atheism are not going to be pleasing to him. But if you want to experience salvation, ordinarily, yeah, you need to believe in God and that he rewards people who seek him and then you need to seek him. Having said that, though, having a merely normal rational faculty is not necessarily going to mean that an atheist is culpable or fully culpable for their disbelief in God. They may have a normal rational faculty in the sense that there's nothing wrong with the way their brain works compared to other fallen humans, but they were just raised a certain way. Or they had certain life experiences, and so the garbage in, garbage out principle applies. If you've been fed a lot of anti-theistic rhetoric from your culture or your parents or your school, and you have a normal human faculty that tends to trust what it's told, well, you could end up as a non-theist. And you've just never gone to the extra links to say, wait a minute, let's take another look at this issue. Maybe I can prove that God exists. So... And a person with ideal human reasoning would not inculpably be an atheist, but someone with merely normal fallen reason and a bad education, I could imagine being an atheist not culpably. Excellent. Well, thank you all for that great feedback. That was very interesting. Uh, And uh, so, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? We've got three. First, uh, prosecutors are near a plea deal for the Golden State Killer. 
who we talked about in a previous episode. And in part, it's the coronavirus that uh, that has moved some of that along. Some of the families of the victims have been more willing to say, okay, given the way the coronavirus would stretch out the trial with everybody aging, we'd like to see justice done sooner rather than later. So it looks like he may be making a plea deal. He'll plead guilty to his crimes in exchange for a life sentence rather than the death penalty. Also, there's been yet another attempt to read the Voynich manuscript. This time, a gentleman claims that he has begun to, that he's been able to establish that it's written in Hebrew, that that's the base language, even though it's written in a different script. Although, you know, we've heard this so many times before, and this time in the article, which we'll link, he, uh, the gentleman who's making this claim, the scholar who's making this claim, says that it is kind of difficult to read the Hebrew because it's got unusual words and unusual spellings. And it's like anytime someone's saying this is hard to read Hebrew, funny Hebrew, it makes me wonder, are they really reading this or are they reading into it? So we'll have to see how that investigation progresses. Finally, we'll have a link to, given since we mentioned the coronavirus lockdown and the impact it's had on the Golden State Killer case and on our lives in general, you might wonder, well, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of all viruses? Wouldn't that be neat? Well, it turns out, up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, we'll have an article on what would happen if we could magically get rid of all viruses. Turns out the world would be a really nice place for about a day and a half, and then we'd start dying. Mm. So some, some viruses are our friends. Yes. Also want to let you know about an interview I recently did with Mark Wilson of the Catholic Bard. It's all about Mysterious World, and it's called Jimmy Akin's Mysterious Interview. We talk about uh, the podcast and some of the background to the podcast that you may not be aware of. So go over to the Catholic Bard and check out Jimmy Akin's Mysterious Interview. We'll have a link to it in the further resources, or you can go to it directly. It's patheos, P-A-T-H-E-O-S, patheos.com slash blogs slash Catholic Bard, or just get the link from the further resources. So that does it for us for, for this time. What do you think about the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI? We want to hear from you and hear your theories and your reaction. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, as we said, we're going to go inside the daring break-in and expose the FBI secrets that it revealed. Very good. Folks, if you've not yet done so, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where at the SQPN YouTube channel, you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's further resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>